Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. You came back. Glad to hear it. So I want to start this morning by sharing my heart with you a little bit. Uh, regarding the series and the topic, uh, because it's become clear we cannot avoid uh, political conversation. It's just dominating our culture, and we are called to engage that culture, and, and I think we could be doing better at it. And to be fair, it's one of the things I want to be in this series is... Uh, is that I don't think we've been spiritually and theologically prepared for the kind of culture we're going into right now, uh, especially as it relates to political things. Uh, and so what's happening, is, at least as I see it, is so, so the political uh, culture is affecting us more than than the spiritual or biblical kind of culture should. And it has affected, I think, it has made us ineffective at our mission, what we're really called to do. And this is a problem, I think, is unique, uh, that is unique among Americans. This is an American problem. And um, because, our, because of the style of government we have and our history, our faith and our national allegiance have sort of merged in such a way that I don't think is healthy, biblical, or right. One of the writers that I've read put it like this. While the church has spent a generation wrangling about what views we hold and what positions we should advance. By the way, uh, I don't know if the whole church has done that. We as individuals have had to do it on our own because we haven't really been taught by the church. You'll have a couple of churches that'll, that'll scream one position or another. But as a whole, uh, we've all just sort of fought and pulled as to which side we want to be on individually. But he says this. In the process of doing that, we've lost our footing. Slouching toward relevance or digging our heels in defense. And in the meantime, it's a great line, we've ceded our imaginations to the earthly city and forgotten the posture that should characterize citizens of the heavenly city. To worship Christ the King is to be a people with a kingdom-oriented stance which will sometimes look aloof from the world and other times pitch us into the fray. It's a great word. So we've sort of lost, in my understanding, uh, 
uh, our distinctive identity as the church. And we've become ineffective, I think, in reaching the world for Christ. Now, I told you last week that it is from this ecclesiological standpoint. I think Peter is going to do it. We need to do it. In other words, our ecclesiological, in other words, church, identity and uh, mission is more, there's more at stake in that than any political loss. Now, I understand it will take time to process that. That's what this series is about. And I know it will sound radical. I know some of the things we said last week were, you know, there's just not things that are just said a lot. I'm trying to use First Peter to help us process this biblically because I think he does do a good job making this plain for us. So before, so I want to invite you, this is an invitation, to, to stick with me through the series. Even if last week you were th- just, you sort of knocked over a little bit. Um, don't make assumptions, this happened a lot over the week, about where I stand on things. I haven't told you everything, and I can't do it all in one talk. So I have to, we have to walk through this process together, and I am fully, uh, you need to know, all the questions that you walked out of here with last week, I'm wrestling with. So I'm struggling with you. So hang with me. At some point, I hope to create an environment where we can have actual conversations like this in smaller groups uh, than just somebody on a platform. I'd love it if small groups could converse about this topic and not make anybody on, whether they were blue or red, feel bad. I don't know that we're there yet. So, Smith, one of the writers I read, I think said something really profound. He says, you need a robust ecclesiology in order to be able to do that. I don't think we have a robust enough ecclesiology. In other words, a robust enough understanding of who the church is so that we know where our identity is and we're not fighting for an identity in politics. The whole world is fighting for an identity, and they're using politics to find it. We don't need politics to find our identity. And it is a desperate attempt to find an identity that the, the world is struggling. We have one. And so he says we need a robust ecclesiology, and that will require, he said, thoughtful and rigorous theological work. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to do it. I fought God for a couple of months this summer on this topic because I just didn't want weary head. I was already sick of it, like many of you are, and I just said, I don't want, I don't want to. I don't have a choice. I, I don't have a choice. So, Here we go. 
We need to develop a theological identity that shapes our engagement with the world. Peter is addressing a society that is anti-God. And our society is similar. More similar than maybe it's ever been. And so it has great advice. But it is going to require us to think we, we got to get to the root of some of our poor thinking before we can engage the world. So what does Peter do to the, for this church? What's he going to do for them? Let me show you how he starts and ends this book, just to give you a quick overview and feel. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Just stop right there. It's amazing how he starts this because he uses all this language to describe the church that was used of Israel. They were chosen. They were exiles. And every Jew that wasn't living in Palestine was considered the diaspora, dispersed and scattered around the world. Wherever you're at, and in this case, they were in Asia Minor. Wherever you are, I want you to know who you are. So, let's look at this. He is about to tell them two things. I want to show you this picture right here. Because these two things establish their identity right from the beginning. How does Paul help a a, a group of people struggling in a harsh society. First thing he wants them to know is who they are vertically in relation to God, and the second thing is is who they are in relation to society. Spiritually speaking, they are chosen, speaking of the church. In relation to society, they are exiles. One is theological, if you could call it that. One's sort of their social political identity. This is your social political identity in the world. Wherever you're at, scattered anywhere you want to be, applies to any location that you are. Okay, so this is the language that was used of Israel. And so at some level here, I won't get into that theological mess at the moment, but at some levels, the church is like Israel. Sort of the new Israel in some respects. And in that sense, we are uniquely God's people. Just like Israel, the nation was, the the church is now. In other words, we have a similar identity. We're chosen by God. We are exiles in the world. Remember, Israel was, so we have a similar experience. They were exiles, remember, to Babylon. Remember, they were exiles, Daniel. They were exiles because of their disobedience. We're exiles because of our obedience, Peter says. 
because you're connected to Christ, you will be different than any culture you're in. This is a profound statement. This is Peter, this is Peter saying, I have called a group of people that can thrive in any culture. You can put them anywhere. But they're not at home in any location. That's the exile. Okay? And it's because of our relationship to God. So first, look at the chosen, the church. We are God's people by his initiative. I'm going to show you how important that thought is, that you've been chosen politically. Uh, this is a decision that was made a long time before you were born, so God didn't know anything about you. Uh, in other words, he didn't choose anything special about you. He just loved you. You were chosen before you did anything. He loved you before time. Uh, John Stott, one of the uh, commentator on, on First Peter, said, you're not a choice people. We are not a choice people. We're not USDA choice. You know, you, you say, ooh, that's good looking meat right there. I think I'll buy that. But when God looked at you, he didn't say, ooh, that's good looking. Uh, I don't want to say meat. Um, that's good looking stuff right there. So I'm going to buy that. God said, I loved you before there was anything to love. That means there's no elitism in the church. Nobody, nobody had a leg up. Nobody was smarter. You didn't, you didn't figure something out that the rest of the world can't figure out. You're not better than anybody else, smarter than anybody else, stronger than anybody else. You'd have never made it in if he didn't pick you. There was nothing about you gravitating towards that, that you can raise your hand and go, yeah, I figured that out. No, you didn't. There's no elitism. Everybody in here is amazed that they're in. And because of it, we have hope for anyone who's not in. However, once we are in, we have a privileged status. By virtue of the fact that we are related to God. We are uniquely called in, in terms of how we got in. And because we are uniquely called, we have a unique and very special future. Which is why Peter speaks of salvation, future. Because he wants you to know that just, you've come into this incredible, beautiful community of people that God has chosen. And you are destined for something incredibly special at the end. Which is why you can never be home anywhere I put you on this earth. You'll always feel a little bit like an outsider. No matter where I put you. That means that God's choosing us is not just a theological reality. It has social implications. It's a sociological fact, too. I'm an exile, not just because I'm not home. I'm an exile because I am related to God in a unique way. So I have a new relationship to society as a result of being connected to God. 
So it makes me a foreigner anywhere I am. You know, you really ought to, one of these days, jump on our beginning of the month prayer times on a Tuesday night where we join with churches all over the place and look at the different colors of people and hear the different accents, some different languages, and see all of us bound together by loving God even though we all live in different places, completely irrelevant of where we are geographically, bound by one thing that supersedes anything on this planet. So we're estranged. In, the, in uh, Augustine's The City of God, citizens of a heavenly city, he says, uh, lead what may be called a life of captivity. What does he mean by that? Because we're in a foreign land like Israel was. Israel went into captivity. When Listen, listen to how he closes the book. This is, uh, no, it's here. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, so here's our last verse, reminds us of the first verse. Chosen. Sends you greetings. Who's sending them greetings? Who is this woman at Babylon? And where's Babylon? There's no Babylon. Peter is in Rome. He's at the church in Rome. That's her. He's calling Rome Babylon. Why? Because that's where Israel went into captivity. That's where they were exiles, because they were not at home. So he basically essentially says, every church, wherever they are, I'm in Rome, you guys are in little provinces in Asia Minor, wherever we are, we're all in Babylon. We're all, kept, we're all sort of in captivity. Exiles, not home. The church, doesn't matter where it is. Likewise, chosen. All churches, chosen and exiles. That's essentially what he is saying. He's just repeating it in a different way, using the gra- this graphic uh, term. Remember, uh, Revelation will use Babylon to describe Rome. And of course, the language in Revelation, especially 17 and 18, about Babylon is very harsh and evil. And eventually this term will become packed with a whole lot more evil as you get to the end, especially Revelation. But right here, it's just not home. It's just not home. So she who is Babylon is chosen. So that what you've got is an inclusio here. Hey, before we begin a discussion about how to live in a society where people don't know God, let me make sure you're clear on a couple of things. Number one, you are chosen and vertically related to God. And number two, you are in exile. Everything in between is about how to live life as an exile. That's the function of an inclusio. Let me put it all together for you here and wrap it up like parentheses. It's like big parentheses around the thought. So we're all churches everywhere are in a foreign land making us all exiles. And by virtue of that relationship to God, we are estranged from society and called to live in a certain way as exiles. Remember what we said in 2.9? Look at this. 
you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Because you're such great people? No. Because of his mercy. And so I urge you, this is Peter's entire essence of his message. I'm going to exhort you, and I'm going to exhort you as sojourners and exiles. You need, we need to learn how to live as sojourners and exiles in this world. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Not only are you estranged geographically, you're estranged internally and spiritually. You don't even have the same desires of the people in the culture that you live with. You don't even have the same desires. You have different desires. That's one of the reasons why you're exiled. You're not at home. Because the things that people want, you don't want. The beliefs that you have are not the beliefs of the place you live. The hopes you have are not the hopes of the place you live. The loves that you have are not the loves of the place that you live. You're in exile. You're in captivity. But don't be afraid of that because you're God's chosen. And you see the political language that he uses here. It's just incredible. You see this language? In other words, you're your own, this chosen group is sort of its own kind of political entity. In other words, we operate on a politic no other culture is capable of operating on by virtue of the fact that we're chosen and related to God. But it's interesting because uh, O'Donovan, in a, in, a, in a work on this topic, talks about man, what, a, what an incredible political analogy, this language, the secular political terms. Uh, he says, but they don't mean the same thing, but they overlap, he writes, because the people of God have their own sort of politic, and the world has its own kind of politic, and they are not, they are not equal, and there's no way they can be. And so you have... On the theater of earth, God politically accomplishing what he wants to in the world, and I say politically with a very spiritual theological implication, and the world trying to accomplish what it's worth. God's trying to save the world in a different way. It's, a, it's just a great, great thought. So we are his nationals. And foreigners, anywhere we go, estranged not only geographically, but internally as it relates to passions and desires. I like what, uh, uh, what this suggests. Okay, the fact that we are exiles. And, and one writer puts it like this. because it's the beginning of how to think politically. 
There is a holy ambivalence about our relationship to the political. A sort of engaged but healthy distance rooted in our specifically eschatological hope. Let me stop the quote there. Because all he's saying is this. By virtue of the fact that we're exiles, no matter where you put us, we are a little bit distant. By the way, whenever you go into a country, if you're an exile, if you're not a citizen there, you always sort of feel a little bit on the outs. Where no one likes, no one likes to feel that. You'll always feel a little bit distant. For those of you who've traveled, you know the experience. This is not your home. People can see it. And so you'll always feel just a little bit out. And so the initial response of being in exile, anywhere that's not your absolute home, is this feeling that it's a little distant. That's the first reaction. And that's what he's saying. Why? Because you have a different home. You have a different eschatological home. Big word just means the end, where you're headed. Remember, because we're chosen, we're not only in, but we have a future. That's where our eyes are. And so because we're not here yet, we're exiles. So there's a healthy distance immediately by virtue of the fact that we're a chosen people. And it runs counter to progressivist hubris or pride. Triumphalistic culture wars or despairing cynicism. In other words, we're careful what we get up in arms about. And we're very careful about what makes us cynical. We're very careful about what devastates us or discourages us. Right now, the Christian community is reeling from what's happened in the community as if we have forgotten who we are. The, the joy's gone. It's, it's replaced with anger. We have a whole new approach to society as if we were already home. Now, before I tease out what it means to be an exile which I'll probably do over the series, but I want to get, I want to try to get into it a little bit today. I, don't, I didn't in the first service, so I'm not going to. I'm only going to get halfway through this talk. Uh, it was a little frustrating, but it's okay. But before I tease out what it means to be an exile, um, let me say the obvious. God has no other chosen nation or people than the church. Did that jump out at you yet on First Peter? The chosen are the church. It is the church. America is not a chosen nation. Israel was. God has set them aside. And he brought in the church as his chosen nation, race, and people. The church. Anywhere it is. If you treat America as a spiritual entity, you will make demands of it similar to the kinds of demands that God makes of the church 
It is impossible for them to fulfill it. They're not in relation to God the way the church is. Does everybody understand that? It is not capable of being what Peter describes it to be. The history of Christian influence and ideas uh, have given us the idea that America is Christian. And we have often compared America to Israel. And so it's very common. I see it all the time and have for decades. We read the promises to the nation of Israel as if they were promises to America. Careful. We're not the same. What you end up developing is sort of a political gospel which if you're wanting to read on some of this stuff, The Liturgy of Politics, uh, actually by Caitlin Scheiss. is a great little read. And she talks about the political gospel that emerges when, when, uh, when, American, when, when the idea of America and Christianity are merged. It didn't work in Israel. They were a nation. God was their actual king. And they screwed that up and ousted him out. And what we learned is no nation can serve God the way that, the way that it's intended to, the way God intends for his people to be. So God tried the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Let's, let's gather them all together and see if we can make a, a new people. And then they had to go to the Mosaic Covenant. Let's give them a law and see if that will uh, show them how to live. And then we'll give them the Davidic Covenant. I'll even promise them another king. None of it worked. And you got God scratching his head in the Old Testament going, you know what I need? I need a new covenant. Literally, that's what he called it. He didn't have any special name for it. I just need a new covenant. If I want to create a people who are my act, who, who treat me like their God and I treat them like my people, if I want them, I'm going to have to change their hearts. I can't put them in a political system. I can't put them in a national system because they'll screw that up. It doesn't work. That's not how this works. You have to transform hearts. So you need a new covenant. And the new covenant is how the church came to be. I'm going to choose a group of people. I'm going to change their hearts and I'm going to make them sort of a whole new political society in the world. In the world, everywhere. So you can't make a nation Christian. It requires a supernatural act. The new birth which Peter's going to jump right into. And we'll get to that next week, but hang with me. So for a long time here, uh, and it happens, I think, still some less, as, at least in my experience. 
maybe, maybe not in yours, where people considered them Christian, themselves Christian because they were American, right? You know that. If you were American, you were Christian. We couldn't necessarily distinguish the two. Uh, and that made a lot of people think they were Christian. Just like a lot of the Israelites thought they were God's people because they were part of this group. You know, got circumcised, had the law. But they were, their hearts were, were incredibly far from it. They had all the sort of external qualities, but none of the internal ones, and it imploded. So, uh, <laughs> Christians are not born into a state or a country. It's a supernatural birth that happens to them that makes them part of God's chosen people. There's no land that you're born in that makes you Christian or non-Christian. It, it, what God has to do, and he does it, he plucks people from all the nations. That's one of his, one of his great fames is I pluck people from all different kinds of nations. I don't need any particular nation for the gospel to change a life or a heart. Constantine tried that the beginning of the fourth century AD. He came in and he legalized Christianity. It wasn't legal to be a Christian, which means you lost your head if you claimed to be one. You were tortured by Diocletian. He was a raving maniac and he hated Christians. They were dying left and right. So one of the reliefs that came to the church when Constantine legalized Christianity and said it's okay to be a Christian here was at least some of the persecution halted. Something we've enjoyed as America that no one else is enjoying. It was a great relief. But it also devastated Christianity. Because people, in order to get in good with the emperor and the empire, started to use Christian things to gain favor. And pretty soon, Christianity was being used. Not unlike, completely unlike, how politics uses Christianity today to get things it wants. So we snuggle up to certain ideas and political uh, ideologies. And we get used. It's the same, very, very similar thing that happened. But what happened was the culture began to affect Christianity more than the opposite. So people started considering themselves Christian just because it was the state religion. It wasn't long before you needed a council of Nicaea in order to correct the heresies that started to pop up in Christianity because people, because people weren't losing their heads to be one. See, there were no nominal Christians during Diocletian's reign. You know what that means? Nobody just called themselves a Christian while, while Diocletian was in rule. I mean, when that guy was in rule, if you called yourself a Christian, you were going to lose your head. So if you were really a Christian, you would claim it. Otherwise, you shut your mouth. 
You didn't even consider yourself one. But once Constantine got a hold of Christianity, everybody started calling themselves Christian because it was safe. Pretty soon, we didn't know what a Christian was. And while Constantine did some good things for Christianity, ultimately, it, it had some negative effects. People started thinking they were Christians when they weren't. Same thing happened here in America. And the truth of the matter is, and I hate saying this, I literally hate saying this. The church is the purest when it's in a hostile culture. That's why Peter says, hey, you guys, you're panicking over what society's doing. There's no society that can overcome Christianity and God's work, so don't panic there. Uh, But remember, judgment begins with the house of God. You're my first priority, not the society you are. And I will use, just like I used a, a Babylon to purge Israel, I will use an America... I will use any nation to purge you as the church to keep you pure because you're my first priority. If you blend those, that somehow America is this, your approach to America will be out of whack. So you need a robust ecclesiology before you start engaging America or any other nation. Because I'll tell you what you'll do, and we're doing it, if you treat America like it's the church. Something chosen. You'll attack it when it isn't right. Or secondly, You'll completely bail on it. And I've seen that reaction in lots of Christians. You're either going hard after America and saying some hard things, the kind of things that you see on YouTube where people go, so-and-so decimated somebody, so-and-so demolished this, somebody's getting demolished all the time. We've started demolishing. Because we're trying to hold on to something it doesn't exist. And secondly, you'll bail on it. And there's some of you have done that, and I'll be honest with you, I did that for a little while. I was so fed up with what I was seeing and hearing and our inability to, to, to think rationally that I just said, man, I, I, I got to bail on that. I, I just want to check out. So I just checked out everything, you know. as the church, we can't do either of those. If we do, we have found our identity in something that is not the church. To the degree now that that's how the political culture is affecting us more than our ecclesiology is than our churches because we're not being what we ought to be. We're not being exiles.
So we say to some degree to the world, go ahead and go to hell. You want to go, go. And then the language of the rapture, which I brought up last week, and I did that sort of harshly, and I apologize for that. But I want to tell you what I was meaning by that. That, That's our beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of here, Lord. I don't want anything to do with this. And I just want to tell you, however you use the rapture, whatever you believe on the rapture, whatever. It's not an ejection seat. It's never used anywhere in the New Testament to be your get out of suffering free card. If that were the case, Peter would have said, hey, just hold on, rapture could happen any second. You guys are going to be fine. I don't need to give you any advice because you're going to be out of here soon. Whatever it is to you, it is not that. Revelation calls us overcomers. How are we overcomers if we're overgoners? We're overcomers. So that was what I was trying to say. So then how do we live? Let me start this conversation. We'll finish it next week. Uh, that's too far. Oh, I went too far. Two verses left. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We read that earlier. Because that's, that's what exiles are. They don't have the same fleshly passions which wage war against your soul. Keep, here it is, verse 12, here it is. Keep your conduct. What does it mean? What's exile conduct? Keep your conduct among Gentiles. That's heathen. If you're a Republican, that's a Democrat. Right? If you're a, uh, if you're a Democrat, that's a Republican. It could be a Philadelphia Eagle fan. It could be anybody. It could be anybody. I mean, uh, there's a lot of horrible things you could be. (laughs) Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, and by the way, they will. There's no way around it. You're in exile. You're not... You're not fully integrated to their world. You don't believe what they believe. You don't hope what they hope for. You don't love what they love. So you will be spoken against. In other words, you will be offensive by your very presence and life. But I want them to see your good deeds and glorify God. So I don't only want you to be offensive. I want you to be attractive. I want you to be offensive, and I want you to be attractive. We are really good at being offensive. We are not so good these days at being attractive. Do you know how to do that? Does it it ever cross your mind that I've got to be able to be offensive in a way that is attractive? We need to tease that out. Um, the reason is, is because your values, the cherished values that you have are being attacked and will always be attacked in any culture ultimately because no culture, no political, social, political system can ever ultimately maintain who the church is called to be so it will inevitably fall apart because human hearts aren't changed. 
So, you, so your values won't be cherished. It can't, it can't sustain it. What we hoped for, what people wanted in America, cannot be sustained. And so you'll be seen as a threat. There was, uh, let me get to the bottom of this. There's, there's two ways that we have to deal with this. How do we as a church deal with this topic? But even how do we as a church deal with it? And like I said earlier, could we in a small group have a conversation? I mean, I, I have had, uh, in the lifetime of this church, I've had more Democrats tell me the reason they're leaving Hillside is because they can't have a conversation with somebody who's a conservative in, in a small group without being demolished. You may not know that. I've never said it before out loud. So we got a gal walking, who's from Hillside, walking through her neighborhood a couple days ago. And on one side is, uh, she, she notices two homes. One has a Biden sign and one has a uh, Trump sign. She's walking by and the Biden, the side with the Biden, the guy who, who lives there is out in his yard and she says, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, we have people stealing, we have people stealing both our signs in the neighborhood. So we don't know what to think of the neighborhood. But uh, she said, well, how do you guys get along? And she, he said, oh, we're great friends. We have a great time. We're, we're together all the time. We just figured out how to, how to deal with that. But it doesn't get in the way of our relationship. And I'm thinking, that's better than the church does. The church can't even do that. Within its red and blue in here. how far off the mark do you think we are? Like I said at the beginning, that's worse than any political loss. It's the loss of the church and its ability to be offensive and attractive. So I want to give you quick things here, just really quick things uh, that, that might help you be attractive. Can I just give you a few before we, here we go. Number one, in my conversations out here, I'm not trying to make an enemy. Are you trying to make enemies? Are you seeking out enemies? Because if you're trying to make enemies, you're not going to come off as attractive. You, you, you've just completely missed the point. Okay, so that's the first one. Uh, the second one is, uh, my goal is, my goal, ultimate goal, is not to win an argument. It's not even to appear good and not really be, you know. Don't let your, you know, he says right here, uh, when they, when they do speak bad of you. So don't, don't act like something you're not. Uh, because I'm not trying to win anything. Arguments. You know, that doesn't work even in marriage. In the smallest unit of intimacy, it doesn't work there. 
Secondly, am I tolerant of people who disagree with me? Or am I just as hateful as the rest of the world? Hey, are you a little tired of the cancel culture and the intolerance of the world? Are you a little tired of that? You're doing it. We're doing it. We do the same thing. We cut you off. We don't want anything to do with you. We'll never talk to you again. I, I can't even stand in the... Is there somebody you can't even stand in the presence of? See, what that forgets is how you got in here. God couldn't stand in your presence either until his son died on a cross for you. Are you aware of the platform you're using and in its limits? You know, if you love to jump on social media and scream out loud, do you know no one in the world is changing because of social media? Does everybody know that? That your opinion means nothing? All you did was create an enemy and make it harder for people who are trying to win people to Christ. Know the limit of the platform that you're using. Don't speak out here if the platform only lets you go to here. We got to do that if we want to be attractive. There are some places not to say certain things because they inflame, they don't help. And then finally, uh, by the way, I would watch Social Dilemma if you haven't, it's it's a, you probably, maybe many of you have probably already seen it, but it's on Netflix, it's a documentary, it's probably the most important documentary anybody could watch. If I was a parent today with my, with my kids, my preteens and my teens, we would watch that together. Um, they do a phenomenal job of showing you how culture is changing human beings and turning them into something they don't even know they're being turned into. I took notes on a little, uh, little birthday card envelope as I was going crazy. And I love one of the things he said in here about what it does and the addiction that it creates and what happens. It's like addiction. And he says it's creating, social media platforms are creating radicalism, polarization, uh, outrageification, and he used this word, I loved it, vanityification. All those platforms and all of this culture is, tr- is changing us more than scripture and, and the spirit. And we're becoming like what we hate. And finally, um, for those of you who are staunch red or blue, red Republican or conservative, I don't know what terms you want to use. There's so many terms floating out there. I'm just using those because they're simple. Is that okay? Red and blue. No one side on most of the issues, I would say on 98% of the issues that we face as a country cannot possibly be be solved by only thinking the way one side of the world thinks. If you think that, you don't understand. And I got to tell you, I didn't. Because I just checked out of politics all my life. It's this summer 
that I started looking at individual issues and realizing how honestly complex they are. And there is no way. Take immigration, for instance. Wall, no wall. That is the most simplistic, foolish way to think of the whole concept of immigration. You know, you and your wife are walking down in the, in the grocery store. Don't you, have you ever fought over a product? I ain't buying that. What are you talking about? I know that's the one we're going to get. I don't wanna, you fight over just which product to get. Can you imagine sitting in a room and talking about immigration, the complexities of that issue? If you don't know the complexities of that issue, you better really keep your voice down on what others, whatever side you're on because there are two legitimate ways to look at this and they're both, they both have value. And if you don't know that, you're screaming over here and making enemies for nothing. And 98% of the issues will fall into that category. There is not just one way to look at it. There's a few clear moral ones for us as believers. I mean, very few. The rest of them, we got to get in a room and think through really hard. So, be attractive, not just offensive. You got to be offensive and attractive. What does that mean? What what does Peter want to tell us? The other half of this talk, we'll do next week. All right? Father, thank you for our time together. We're grateful for it. Uh, Teach us, Lord. Get us. Help us to be the church that you longed for uh, when you created it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.